Because I don't know when when you start recording. Because like every time I've just started recording, and I'm not well. You can if you want to do a proper intro, you can do the proper intro. Because I did a proper intro last time, so you're doing the proper intro this time. Yeah, yeah, no problem. <sighs> yes, welcome back to the Every Other Sunday podcast. Today we're recording. It's Wednesday, so remaining inconsistent as always. Um, and once again, we have a very special guest. I'm going to introduce Daniel first because, well. I do a podcast with Daniel. So, Daniel, how are we? I'm doing amazingly well, Jay McIntosh, like really well. Have you got your England tats out yet? No, no, I haven't. But I have got my Declan Rice tattoo booked for Sunday, so. Oh, here we go. Here we go. You can hear him already. And as you can tell by the title, I assume, we're joined by Adam Newsom once again of Football London. Adam, how are we? Good. Thank you, guys. Good. Thank you uh, for having me back on. Always enjoy talking to you fine people. Well, we'll see how you're feeling in about an hour's time. But, uh, <laughs> do you know what, Daniel, I'm going to come to you first. I, I, we're not going to talk about England, yeah, because everyone's talking about England. Obviously, England are going to win the Euros. That's, that's pretty much a fact, um, in my head anyway. So, I don't so really know what you guys, about. you two are still young enough that you've still got your heart open to England, whereas I've been burnt too many times before. So I'm not willing to open my heart up just yet and think it's actually possible. They've you got to get to the semis, at least, before I start believing. Genuinely, my first England memory, like really, really strong England memory, is Frank Lampard's disallowed goal. So it never started well. Uh, to, that to makes me feel so old. <laughs> no, Euro 2004 was my first tournament watching England, which was a decent one for Frank. Ronaldo and Rooney had that issue. No, that was World Cup 06. Rooney, oh, right. was, Rooney was on, on flames at Euro 2004. That's when he was like top of his England game, basically. And that's where and I probably, experienced the first penalty shootout <laughs> defeat. England, England probably would have won that tournament had Rooney not got uh, injured in that tournament. I love Wayne Rooney. I think he's got to be one of the most underrated players. But anyway, we have seriousness to talk about, something serious to talk about for well, at least 15, 20 minutes, I imagine. Um, Daniel, do you want to tell the people that are listening what we're going to be talking about a bit? Because it's it's a bit different to, I guess, almost every football podcast at the moment in the sense that everything's Euro-themed, obviously, or, or transfer-based. I mean, we will touch on transfers, obviously. But we we kind of spoke in the week, didn't we, about something we wanted to really sort of delve into on a podcast with uh, an appropriate guest who can give a decent insight um but do you want to do you want to let people know what we're going to be talking about today really uh, what we want to get in today's podcast with adam is what it means to be a chelsea reporter and what that job really entails i think what has stemmed this conversation is several things and it's it's months of evidence of what i've seen particularly on twitter around journalists um, but it also has spread to youtube as well in terms of at least in my view the misconception of what a journalist or a reporter their job is um, and i think that there is a mood a very negative mood being what's the right term built i guess over recent months and i think it's a conversation i think it is a productive one to have in kind of the pre-season the off-season um, because I think it is one that 
has reached already boiling point in some way but I think when the season gets going again for Chelsea and when things get naturally intense and chaotic we may see this get even worse so I think Adam is a really good guest to bring on and to discuss this issue because I I think it's one that needs to be addressed sorry if that sounds a little bit of a mess but that's kind of what we want to get at today what the job entails what it means you know the a lot of the things that get flung at reporters in terms of their intentions behind what they write and why it's not always a fair reflection of their job. Hmm. How succinct. How succinct. Well, yeah, because basically there's been a, there's been numerous sort of video streams, podcasts, etc. Um, and, and I've done a bit of research. It's not just in the Chelsea community. So for anyone that's listening, we're not specifically referencing one video or, or one stream, anything like that. It, it's something that sort of spans across teams, specifically top six teams. Um, but that that might also be part of my ignorance as to someone that doesn't I don't read a lot about Crystal Palace, for example. So it may be I'm sure it exists there as well, but it's hard to it's hard to know where to start really. I guess I wanna I wanna ask you, Adam, more so than anything. Is it is it hard to build trust with with fans of the club you're reporting about? Because obviously you've reported not just on Chelsea, right? No, I've reported on uh, Barnet and Watford previously. Um, so I've gone up the scale, basically, yeah, in terms of quality teams. Um, it is and it isn't to an extent. I mean, covering a club like Barnet, like I did, was great because, to be blunt, no, no one else was doing it. And so you get that respect from the fans immediately that you are a guy who travels across the country reporting on this club, which gets about an average gate of one and a half thousand people. Um, so in that respect, at that level, you, you, there's an appreciation for you doing it, first and foremost. And then as you move up, obviously, with Watford, they were, I did the championship season when they came up and their first Premier League season. And there was a definite shift in how I was viewed, uh, I would say, uh, from the championship to the Premier League. When Watford got into the Premier League, suddenly there was so much more interest in the club from across the board. Uh, from national journalists, from uh, foreign uh, TV channels, all, everything suddenly ramped up and you weren't seen as, as important, basically, because before, you know, you were the local paper journalist and you covered the club and that was really uh, a valuable way of, of knowing what was going on at the club. To come and do Chelsea like I've done, I mean, Chelsea is so huge. Um, it's very difficult to make an entire fan base happy and keep them happy um i probably am in a in a good position as a fan because covering the club i support i have that i don't know innate feeling for how things are anyway but i am very wary that i am a very different fan to somebody who maybe started supporting the club 10 years ago because i can remember the times when getting to an fa cup final for chelsea was exciting and an achievement whereas now it's kind of a given that it just happens um so, so, yes, to answer the question, it's quite nuanced, but covering Chelsea is, is a very different challenge to, to, to relate to the, or to keep the fans happy or, or keep the whole fan base united, because I think it is always going to be quite a, a split fan base. Um, but hopefully, and I feel, I feel quite lucky because so far I've not had any real major grief with anybody. And uh, I think everybody, oh, I say everybody, I think most people appreciate the coverage I have 
have produced over this six months it's actually six months tomorrow that i started um so yeah so far it's been it's been okay actually i just wanted to sort of ask you you spoke about being a supporter of a club that you know you're now covering uh, professionally i've sort of you know i think the athletic have sort of been the biggest maybe leader of this in recent seasons i mean of course as you've mentioned you know there have always been club specific reporters you know for years that's mm. always been a part of the industry but it feels like in recent years with the likes of the athletic and i'm not saying they're the only ones but they're the biggest i guess or mainstream one that supporters will know of have sort of really nailed down into that club specific sort of reporting that you can go to a place that's going to focus solely on your club going to have experts of your club and and you can just sort of be you know have your feed basically tailor-made to your club um and kind of that conflict i guess with having a journalist or a reporter who has to be objective and you know of course is going to do the job professionally who has to ask difficult questions at times but also is seen as a reporter a positive you know mm. someone who knows the club very well and i guess naturally I guess in some people's minds, they're going to, there's going to be a conflict there if you understand, you know, sort of what I'm getting at in terms of people yeah. thinking that you're a supporter, but you also have to be a reporter and sometimes be critical of the club. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting relationship you have to have um, within yourself almost because there are times when the fan in you does want to completely take over. Like, I'll be honest, at the Champions League final, was I sitting there studiously tapping away at my laptop going, oh, yes, yeah, good game, this good game. No, not a chance. I was completely invested and didn't do that much work during the game because I genuinely couldn't concentrate. Um, but after it had all settled down, then you've got your job to do. And then you've got to, you know, I was fortunate enough, I got to ask Thomas Tuckle a question after a Champions League final. Uh, the little 12-year-old Chelsea fan in me would be absolutely marking out at that. But you know, from the reporter's perspective, it was uh, it was an important question to ask, and I think it's it, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to handle. But I think from my perspective, the shift from publications to having club-specific reporters, um, obviously, there's always been this at local level in in English with English media with local newspapers. But I guess a club like Chelsea sort of span the entire country. But to go back to that kind of root of having your your club beat reporters, I think it's just a byproduct of the internet and the fact that people can go and like you say tailor what they want and it doesn't serve a national newspaper to probably in the same way to have a club specific reporter because they you know the football fan will go and, and find the content they want like obviously yourself Dan you 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 do very good videos on on YouTube that people are going to want to come and watch <laughs> Jay's disagreeing uh <laughs> But, yeah, people, yeah, but yeah. you know, people know where to find you and they know what they want to watch. And I think that, you know, there's so many different content creators out there that people can really choose what they want to want to read or want to watch. That it kind of made sense for a lot of publications to focus in on that and move into that sphere and go, OK, well, we see that, you know, these guys are building up traction X, Y and Z place. We really need to, to buy into that now and have a reporter for a club or more than one reporter for a club that is going to be known to the the fan base and, and that that fan base can interact with and hopefully enjoy what what is produced by them could i just you know quickly ask about you know you spoke about content creators there and i know obviously jay will want to come in in a sec just i guess your opinion on because i've had conversations with other reporters about this um in recent years in terms of uh football you know fan channels gaining prominence you know gaining almost 
at times industry influence is probably not the best term for it but you know certain um i guess you'd call them youtube figures from fan channels bigger fan channels uh, across the top six getting into say press conferences and being able to ask questions and i know there's been big sort of um negative response i guess from the journalists sort of media typical media industry side of that because you know as a fan you know going into a press conference and asking a question of a of a head coach uh, pre-match you know it's it's i at the time and I, I still kind of think this like i would never refer to myself as a journalist you know it'd be amazing to get into a press conference and ask thomas talk a question but i have to be honest like i don't I'd feel a little bit uneasy about that. I guess just your point, because there is, you know, no need in terms of blurring the lines in terms of a, a, a reporter who clearly is a fan of that club, but also the fan media side of it gaining prominence in recent years and even getting some, I guess, media, traditional media access as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not arrogant enough to think that the way journalism goes is has been changed and has been shaped. Um, and I think some of that has been for the better, but... I don't think it's unreasonable to, well, it's not unreasonable to expect a football club not to to potentially look at these content creators who have X many subscribers or X many followers and think, you know what, that's an audience we can potentially leverage because football clubs are businesses uh, at heart. They want to promote certain things they want to promote. They want visibility in certain places. And if the traditional media routes aren't open to them and they can't do that through journalists they will find other ways and if that is through content creators with a big audience then that's the route they'll take because they want exposure for whatever they're going to release or for a big match or whatever so it's down to the media almost to adapt how we do things as well and appreciate that audiences are changing um not to the extent that florentino perez would like to you to believe but they are changing in how you know content is consumed, and it's down to traditional media to try and and find a sphere in that and and work alongside that rather than try and fight against it. Because personally, I don't think that will, from a traditional media point, you'll ever win in that respect. Because say the way people read and and view and want their media is is changed. Mm. It's it's interesting as well because I really want to look at sort of the idea of trust. Um, and it's, it's very hard because I don't want to be throwing sort of journalist names out or anything like that, because I don't really have a, a, an issue with too many football journalists, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably because I read a select amount that I know that I like and, and that I personally trust. But for someone who, for who, who is a journalist, how how important, firstly, is it to to build trust with a fan base and and what can you do because I guess sooner or later his name's going to be mentioned but obviously Matt Law ends up in Mm. quite a bit of bother on on social media with a certain subsection of of Chelsea fans. Could I also say that, uh, sorry to interject Jay, I also think Simon Johnson's name has been I, oh, I feel yeah. like yeah, yeah. Matt Law, yeah, absolutely. Anyone on social media would know Matt Law because he's, you know, his prominence in terms of being a Chelsea reporter for a number of years now, in particular his transfer scoops. But I think since Simon Johnson has joined the Athletic, I think his, I guess, notoriety on Chelsea Twitter has sort of grown as well. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to add his name as well because I think that's a fair one. Yeah, both of them have, have suffered. Well, you know, I say suffered, but they've had a lot of, um, in, uh, they've had a lot of sort of negative responses from fans um, the interaction sometimes can be more like a conflict zone than anything else. But how 
how does trust play in, in what you do and and what is it you think makes a journalist reliable? Because with Matt Law, there there have been plenty of things actually that he said that maybe certain fans or whatever haven't really liked, but then later they seem to be true because there's a real blurring mm. of the lines really, specifically on social media between the sort of professional and personal. And that's maybe sometimes quite hard to, to manage or for people to maybe understand. So how does how does sort of trust play in what you do? Is it at the forefront of your mind? Is it more, you know, if I if I do my job and report the, the truth essentially from what my sources from what I hear, then then my integrity is firm and and, and that should be enough to build trust. Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. Um, I guess the, in terms of building trust with the fan base, I guess from just a social media perspective, all I can do is try and be true to myself, especially in my beliefs. And that's why I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who doesn't necessarily want Chelsea to go out and spend £200 million every summer if it can be avoided. And that is my belief of how I would like the club to be. But I appreciate Chelsea aren't necessarily like that and there's a lot of people who disagree with me feeling like that but that's how I feel and that's how I'm going to continue to present myself um in terms of the trust as a as a sort of journalist um it kind of falls into the same category as someone like Matt Law because uh, you mentioned him he's been doing this for a long long time he has built up probably an absolute stack of contacts at Chelsea over the years and it's what enables him to to get very good stories um, and it's the same with, with Simon Johnson. I think there are times when you are going to have to report things on the club that people aren't going to like. And that is the reality of being a journalist. It isn't all rose-tinted spectacles. isn't this great, aren't Chelsea the best football club in the world? No, there are, there's a lot of things that Chelsea don't get right. And when that happens, you're entirely within your rights to call it out. And I think what people don't always appreciate is the amount of conversations that take place behind a story. Um, so take what you sort of suggested there with the Matt Law uh, sort of Antonio Rudiger story at the beginning of the year. Matt Law wouldn't have got that just from one person. I can pretty much guarantee that. There would have been probably two or three or four conversations involved with different people to find out what one person was saying can you corroborate that can you find out if that is the case from somebody else can you find it out from somebody else because it is it's a big story and i think people f- sometimes feel that journalists get told one thing by one person and they go oh cool i'm gonna straight to my keyboard and write this that's just not the case there's a lot of conversations that i had and that's with any article um i for instance i wrote a piece on uh jamama Sialo had a big game yesterday the england germany game and for it, I spoke to someone who was around uh, the, his entourage or whatever you want to call it when he left Chelsea for Bayern. Now, there wasn't an exclusive there for me or anything like that, but I wanted just to make sure what I was going to write was based on informed opinion, basically, rather than just relying on, oh, this is what I think I'm going to write it. So even for a story like that, I still had the conversations just to make sure what I was writing was going to be based on on facts rather than sort of what I've read elsewhere because I personally want to know the story uh, from a couple of people before I go out and write it so journalists never just publish off the back of one piece of information Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people probably forget that or or don't realise that there are a lot of conversations I had a lot of 
sort of different avenues taken before a story is published and especially a story that was so big like uh, the Rudiger one um, because yeah. I think Matt Law would have known that he was going to get a lot of blowback on that and people weren't going to necessarily like it but you have to kind of stand by your convictions at that point and here there is an element of trust with the people you talk to that you're getting the true story and I think sorry I'm going on a monologue but people no, chat away mate I guess what people kind of miss sometimes is that the football media is a very give and take thing. Um, Trust me when I say football clubs will use the media to push what they want sometimes just as much as the other side of it in terms of uh, players or agents or or the other side of of football in that sense use the media as well. It is very much, you know, not quid pro quo, but there's conversations had to, to aid one party and then there'll be conversations had to aid another party and you have to kind of take all this information you're sometimes given and then try and find the story or the truth in it. Um, a good example of this is of a former club, one of the former clubs I covered. There was a, a, a head coach who, who left and I was speaking to people on his side going, what happened? And they were telling me this story and then I was speaking to the club going, okay, what's your side? And they were telling me a completely different story. So I was like, well, I can't really know which version of this is right. And maybe there is a middle ground here that is probably somewhere along the lines of truth. But until I actually know what that hard and fast truth is, I can't really report it as a fact. You can sort of discuss the the situation around it of saying, you know, this camp is saying what, you know, this is the situation this camp is saying, and this is the situation this camp is saying. And then you kind of have to just present the facts that you've been told and let the reader try and go, okay, well, this is the version of events I think is more legitimate than that one. So it is very complicated and it's not a really easy job to do sometimes because of that. But you have to say, you have to try and be true to yourself and just be confident that the relationships you've built up with contacts over the years stand you in good stead when it does come to a big story that you can take that information and use it and be sure that it is pretty much everything you need to know in terms of the truth the thing that i think has triggered this conversation and i'm not going to hide away from it in this podcast uh was something that jay sent me last week um and i'm not going to name it but I, you know i think that people can find it if they want to um i mean there's no other way around it it was an accusation mainly towards uh Matt Law and Simon Johnson um the players were named and they have been named consistently is uh, Jorginho and I think Antonio Rudiger and you know I Adam you know what I'm speaking about here um in terms of the accusation that was leveled at these journalists and I just worry for the mood on social media which sadly despite Chelsea winning a Champions League still gets pretty toxic and has been you know and and my from my point of view it's got worse and worse every year and I just think that this is the heat continues to be turned up on this I mean can it get any worse you know is it just words you know on on our pages on Twitter you know but I think that an accusation like that that was labeled at those two journalists was just ridiculous like truly ridiculous and you know I, I think that it comes from people who quite clearly have a, a a strong misconception of what your role is um and i mm-hmm. just don't know how we can at all there can be a a productive and fruitful relationship if that's where we're at currently if the, those accusations are currently being thrown at those journalists mm-hmm. where do you go from there like you know do you know what i'm saying yeah i i understand and 
I guess from my perspective again is that social media is not a nice place a lot of the time um and yeah these accusations can be made and i think people will make accusations against journalists for getting even the sort of the accusation you sometimes people make you know oh, you can be impacting a player's mental health or something like that i think people forget that by absolutely slandering journalists you could be doing the exact same thing um for to people who are ultimately just doing their job this is you know it is a job in a public eye you put out stuff to the world and you kind of leave yourself exposed a little bit because of the reaction to that um what i would say is i don't well i don't think and from my experience and i've been doing this for over 10 years nothing a journalist writes is or should be personal to a footballer it is, should be purely based on what is happening on the pitch or what you hear necessarily off the pitch sometimes they will will inform what you can write but you know i don't think there's going to be many examples of a journalist going oh that x player what an awful bloke he's the worst blah 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 on a public sphere maybe they'll talk to people around the club and you hear stories and you'll go oh not sure about that guy sounds a bit maybe not the sort of person i'd want at my club but at the same point unless you can prove that yourself which is very difficult then it becomes harder to write. Um, so I think people have to yeah, say, be wary of throwing abuse at journalists uh, or abusing journalists for what you perceive to be abusing players, because essentially you're doing the same thing that you're accusing a journalist of when, as I say, I think most journalists, most journalists get into football reporting because they love football and they love the game and they are fans at heart like they will support their own clubs in the same way that we all support Chelsea and yes there are uncomfortable moments in this job where you have to make difficult decisions and sometimes you will report something in good faith and it all turn out to be wrong or not the entire story and that is the way it goes um I've shared per- from my own a personal story it was in January I was told Billy Gilmore was going out on loan I was like cool wrote the story then I think it was the next day. Oh no, Thomas Tuchel has decided he's not. It's like okay, well that makes my story look completely wrong. But at the time when I wrote it, it was right, and that's the sort of ways you know that things can very much quickly change uh, as a journalist, and it happens in football. Things can change really quickly. You can have a uh, you can have the strongest story you want on a transfer deal, for instance, and at the last minute a player pulls out. Um, you look at the Lucien Favre stuff at, at Palace, everybody had reported that it's happening, it's happening, it's happening, contracts drawn up, it's all done. On the day it comes to sign it, he pulls out. Well, it doesn't make the stories that were written before wrong at that point. But then all the stories saying Lucien Favre is Palace's new manager, then suddenly become wrong. And I think that's the difficulty as, as journalists that you do write stories in good faith and they do sometimes the story changes. And then people can neither respect the fact that what you wrote was either correct at the time or done so on information that you trusted and yes okay you hold your hands up if you got it wrong or, or things are changing you and that's the point where people either go oh okay fair enough or they come at you fortunately I've not had much of the second really and I'm, I'm appreciative of that and there are uh, policies or, or, or whatever you want to be put in place at the company I work for people who do get abuse on social media because it really can affect people um 
for doing this job and it can be quite unforgiving uh but i think people have to remember that yeah everyone who gets into this is doing it for the best intentions and because they love football just as like you do so maybe don't just slag them off because you feel that they're pushing an agenda when they're almost certainly not i would say i just don't understand how this this agenda has you know words like agenda that get thrown at all i mean it's not just a journalist thing like i know someone like matt law and simon johnson and probably yourself get it thrown at much more but like i know me and jay we joke about this but you know it's it's it is thrown at you on almost it. daily basis i mean it has become a meme <laughs> like it has to me yeah. i know obviously to some it would affect yeah. them but it has passed the point of you know absurdity you know it is um but it does have an effect you know it, it's this belief on social media that your opinion because sometimes you know it's not just you know as as you've done recently with re- reports or sorry your more opinion pieces it's it's this belief that your opinion must be of malicious intent like the reason you think that Chelsea should sign a player is because you have a malicious agenda against this player when it's just your Mm -hmm. opinion like surely you know I'm coming at it it from a different angle to you but I why can't my argument be as principled as yours you know that's the one of the toxic things that I think social media has sort of festered and I just I, I look at more so opinion pieces in recent times um for Rudiger but also for I think Kai at the time just before he played against Palace I think it was we had an amazing game Matt Law was speaking about sort of Chelsea problem scoring goals Mm -hmm. which were obvious I mean at the time they were just the most obvious thing every fan was talking about it who's gonna solve our goal scoring issue and uh, I think Matt Law said oh you know maybe give Tammy Abraham a chance you know I don't think Kai should start Uh, Kai of course starts on a Saturday and bangs in a load of goals so it's and then everyone turns around to Matt Law and goes, you know, you've got a malicious agenda, all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I just don't I, I think that it's a really sad place that we've got to this this spot already. And it's not just faceless Twitter avies anymore, sadly. You know, I think some of us can just write a lot of this abuse and trolling off on social media because it's like a faceless, anonymous person. Unfortunately, it has, you know, passed over to my neck of the woods in terms of YouTube and, and that's why I think it's something that needs to be confronted. I don't know what you want to say, Jay. No, I, I don't really have to add to that in, in the sense, but it's just, I, I, it, I'm trying to word this properly, but it's, it must be quite tough, specifically managing social media when you are a journalist and you are in the public eye, specifically in, in you know, the fans' eyes. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps it's more of a, of a UK thing than it is elsewhere. There's, there's always been a history specifically in football of journalists being sort of untrustworthy and people mm. you don't want to be around. And, and actually, when, that's not at all true in any way, shape or form, specifically now. But, you know, I wanted, I wanted to ask really, and I, and I guess this obviously relates to, to Matt Law because he does, what among other things, write for the Telegraph, right? And yeah. Do you believe that because of the way newspapers operate globally, but in the UK, they're often politically aligned, et cetera, et cetera. Do you believe that because someone writes for a certain newspaper, they instantly get tarnished with with this perhaps they're not trustworthy or, or they're trying to, to to wrong a certain player? Because I, I really genuinely believe a, a, a decent proportion of people's opinion is influenced by the paper they write for, which is either fair enough or, or maybe not but sometimes that can be 
unfair because there are certain people that have written for publications I don't read but I trust them and have trusted their stuff before Mm. does that make sense yeah I think there may be a small section of people who are influenced by the newspaper that the writer uh, writes for but I guess it's easy to forget how many people from abroad will read Chelsea content and how few of them will care where it comes from because they won't understand yeah. the political leanings of certain certain publications. Um, so I think the fact Matt Law writes for The Telegraph probably isn't a huge issue. Um, the fact that people can't necessarily always read what he writes and maybe take a headline is, is, is maybe a bit more of a problem because it's obviously behind uh, yeah, a paywall. Um, but in terms of, of, of the point that Dan was making in, in agendas and opinion pieces, I mean, when does an opinion become an agenda? And the big talking point of the, at the moment, obviously, or one of them is is that, that Thomas Tuchel would like to sign uh, a right-sided player. And, you know, I think everybody knows Chelsea were interested in, in Ashraf Hakimi and that didn't happen. And, and they're now seemingly... According to Matt Lawrence, I uh, should mention, you know, are now interested in Adama Traore or, or looking to explore a deal for him. And yeah, my opinion on that is I don't think that's worthwhile because I don't see him as a player who necessarily elevates Chelsea. And I do think. Yeah, he's are... rubbish. <laughs> I wouldn't say he's rubbish. I think he's got a very specific skill set which would work very well for some clubs, but. Um, I'm not sure Chelsea need to go out and spend a lot of money on him because I think you've got players in the building already that can do that job. And from speaking to speaking to parents of, of necessarily younger players in the academy sometimes, um, you know, guys who are like 13, 14 years old, um, and not just at Chelsea, this is at other places, these parents look at what the situation is at first team level for their kids. So you have... I remember this is, you know, again, this isn't Chelsea, this is one of my former clubs. You'll have a, a young player at a football club who will be very, very talented and highly thought of. And um, this isn't, this is not the player I mentioned, but I'm just going to throw his name in. Jane Sancho was at Watford before he went to Man City. And I'm not sure that's really widely known too much. Mm. But a lot of uh, a lot of football clubs or uh, parents of young players at football clubs will go, right, is there this pathway for my kid because he's 13 14 now i'm looking ahead he will have to sign a scholarship at, uh, at 16 and then potentially a pro deal but is there uh is there an avenue for him longer term to fulfill his dream here or her dream here and i think that's what people forget is yeah you can go out and sign a dharma for 25 million pounds now um and maybe that will result in Tino Livramento or Dujon Sterling leaving the club. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk about Tino Livramento leaving. And yeah, you can lose Tino Livramento, but you don't know what you're losing four years down the line potentially because of the 14 year old whose parent goes, you know what, Chelsea are reverting to their old ways. Let's go to X club because they have a history of, of actually promoting youth and, and giving it a chance long term, not just because. Frank Lampard walked in the door and decided to give a load of young players a chance for, for a couple of years. So that's my opinion. It's not an agenda against the Derby Traore. Uh, it's just the way, and you know, this goes back to informed opinion, I guess, from speaking to certain people. 
but I'm very aware that I wrote this piece and a lot of people basically were saying, oh, yeah, but Tuckle wants a Dharma, so why don't you want Tuckle to succeed? So it's not. I'm, I desperately want Thomas Tuckle to succeed. I would love a manager or a head coach to stay at Chelsea for four years because it actually does make a huge difference to building longer term and sustained sort of pathways for youth players. It's really important. It's just my opinion. It is just my opinion that I don't think Adama Traore is a signing that Chelsea need. If Chelsea go out and sign him, am I going to start this war against Adama Traore that he's the worst <laughs> footballer to play for? No, I will report on him fairly. If he has a good game, I'll, I'll tell the word he has a good game. If he has a bad game, I'll say, in my opinion, he had a bad game. And I think that's what I've kind of done with uh, everyone's favourite Italian midfielder, Jorginho. He has had some really bad games for Chelsea. But during the Champions League run, I don't think anyone can argue he was absolutely fantastic. There were mm. three or four games in particular where he absolutely stood up and produced. And I think I wrote, I did write a piece after the one of the Porto games, I think. Saying, you were you know, on the podcast. You were lit. That was the last time you were on the podcast. Yeah. I remember we shout because we spoke about Jorginho and we shouted out that piece you wrote about him. All right. We got a better memory than me. Um, but that's the thing. I, I, I don't know Jorginho and this is what COVID has partly influences you you don't we don't go down to Cobham at the moment you can't go down there and just interact and be around and maybe speak to the player as you're walking through the car park or all of that this is not happening so you you can only base your opinion really on firstly what they do on the pitch and then maybe what you get told by people you trust off it but Jorginho is is the interesting one because yeah from my perspective I've written about the times he's had bad games West Brom at home rubbish I, I bet you, you didn't say something as bad as I said. Probably not. Probably not. But I did, I think I did the player ranks for that game and I maybe gave him like a three or four, something like that. But then conversely, Porto uh, Porto Champions League probably gave him a nine mm-hmm. or a ten because he, you know, he was yeah. that good. So as long as you're fair and it's hard, I would imagine, oh, like I say, I, I, I'd guess it's hard to say that I'm forming an agenda when I'm trying to be as balanced as I can in, in how I report things. And, and yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I'm very fortunate that I've not had too much abuse or anything like that on social media. And I hope I don't going forward because I do genuinely like interacting with the Chelsea fan base because at heart, I'm one of them. So we may disagree on certain things. We may not have the same feelings on every player, but at heart, we both want Chelsea to win. So let's just all you know have a have a conversation if we don't agree we don't agree but let's just move on at that point there's no need to start chucking abuse at each other well that sounds very radical um <laughs> but sens- sensible nonetheless um i am well i don't really think i have any specific anti agendas i was quite emotional after the west brom performance um and i may have said some things that have prompted lots of responses repeatedly um well yeah and it's something that daniel obviously finds funny i can see him smiling and but I, I got caught in the same storm a couple of weeks ago when i just like casually done what was a joke really it wasn't like a you know in terms of what i could have said about a player it's like it's funny how social media works like it's the most mild thing like i literally put my phone down and then like two hours later I was like, what the hell? And Jay, I think, actually, I think Jay was texting me telling like, what the hell is going on? Um, 
and unfortunately there is a there is a sense on social media and it's probably the um with chelsea fans i think this is the same probably for a lot of clubs there are maybe not exactly the same but i feel like there are certain players now that have become radically protected by a certain group of accounts on twitter and i don't you know i i if that annoys people that's just that that is not an agenda yeah. that is that is no, obvious let's, let's be fair let's be fair on the on the flip side because this is what they'll say and this is part of the new agendaless every other sunday podcast Declan rice is also very well protected absolutely and there are people and i'm i have to admit a lot of the accounts that simply follow a player I can't say I'm fully on board with. Like that's always been a little bit strange Sorry, to me. Easter, so well, correct. there are other players within the first team that are quite liked, and we like on this podcast a lot. You know that I, I just find it, you know, I, you know, just support all the players. You know, that's the thing. Of course, I'm going to have my personal favourites because that's just the way life goes. But what I'm saying, if we relate this back to, you know, the sort of the work of reporters, is that there are now players that you can't say anything negative about, like remotely critical about. You know, even myself now, I sometimes think that despite being someone who on the track record has opposed abuse to Jorginho, wrote pieces when he was being sarcastically cheered at Stamford Bridge in protection of Jorginho, anytime I bring up the idea of, of a new central midfielder, I think that or something that's vaguely saying, hey, maybe we could improve this area. You know, you think there's going to be a barrage of attacks. And I just I think the that temperature in a time when it's actually really good for Chelsea, it's going to bubble over again. And I just, I don't know, Adam, I, I think that that's the concern for me, that Sari was a real high negative point on social media. I personally think Lampard took it to another extreme. <laughs> Twitter is not going to take, Twitter is not, in my opinion, going to like uh, take it down, the pressure down anything for me. For me, it's mm. just going to get worse. And I worry what the next thing is going to be and I think some of this contributes to it yeah I guess there are always as you say it's inevitable that certain people are going to have favorites at a football club and will feel protective about those uh players from my own experience when I was younger when Frank Lampard played for England I was always a little bit extra desperate for Frank Lampard to have a good game for England because I knew that if he didn't, loads of people would slag him off. And I loved Frank Lampard as a player. I thought he was the years better and still do think he was Chelsea's best ever player. And I, I felt protective about him when he played for England. So I kind of understand where a lot of people come from in terms of feeling like you have to protect the player you you enjoy watching or you like more than other players. You have to sort of protect that. I guess social media shows the extreme levels that that can go to. But I don't think it's unreasonable for other people to criticise Frank Lampard. Uh, sorry, Chelsea players. And in my case, Frank Lampard, you know, I always wanted him to play well. And if he didn't play well for England, I, I didn't like it when other people necessarily criticised him. But I understood that that's the gig, basically, that people get paid to write things about football. And sometimes the players you like are going to get criticised. And it's not usually done uh, with any malicious intent. It's just done on a, on a view of a performance or an opinion of, of a series of performances so it's a tricky one because yeah this is always going to be a thing and, and i'm sure as you say people would on the flip side go oh you guys love the academy you protect the academy players you you love declan rice he doesn't even play for the club why do you love declan rice and yeah, Daniel. Again, but you know it's your view it's your opinion you can freely put it out there if someone disagrees with it that's fine 
but I guess Twitter has made it very easy for someone just to be abusive rather than just scroll for their Twitter feed and go, oh, so Daniel thinks uh, is good. Okay, fair enough. Good for him. I'll keep scrolling. People have to, I guess, engage in a debate, and that's kind of the world that, that Twitter lives in. But, I mean, there's always going to be people who want to defend the players alike. I'm sure there's, you know, yeah. at Timui Bakayoko, whatever you want to call it, who loves Timur Bakayoko and is stunned that Chelsea have never given him more than that, a season. That's run by Timur Bakayoko himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a burner account. But I'm sure there's a couple of people out there who would love Bakayoko to come back and would defend him to the nth degree. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a strange part of being a fan, I guess. And I don't necessarily understand the the fans of players more than clubs which there seemingly are a growing amount of you think you look at the amount of um instagram followers juventus gained when ronaldo went there it was absolutely ridiculous um but that's again it's it's evolving fandom it's evolving uh media it's all this it's all this bubbling up and as you say i think it's just important that people and it's maybe too idealistic but are always respectful to other people even if you don't agree with them because Every Chelsea fan wants Chelsea to win at heart. There are certain ways that you may want Chelsea to win. You know, from my perspective, what an unbelievable achievement it would be to to win a trophy with 11 academy graduates in a squad. Is it going to happen? Probably not. That's not really how Chelsea do things. And I accept that. But it would still be a dream for me to see it. And if I sometimes feel that there are ways that Chelsea can get close to that, then I'm going to air my opinion on it. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong doesn't mean whoever is 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 right or wrong either it's just an opinion not an agenda if you really have a major issue with any sort of journalist you don't have to read it <laughs> and i also say just on that you don't if you have an issue with any player you don't have to tweet them you don't have to add yeah, yeah. tweets please and oh God, what is, i said this on, on another podcast the other day if you want to criticize a player for a rubbish performance fine you're entitled to do that put it out on twitter just do not tag the player or do not and again do not tag a journalist or do not tag whoever you want if you're slagging someone off maybe don't tag them in it because it's not needed you can you can criticize a footballer without tagging them in it and it was sad that someone like Kepa was having to turn off his uh, notifications or replies on twitter to people because of the abuse he was receiving that's not needed just you can say oh Kepa had a bad game I can't believe he let in another goal from 50 yards. But you don't have to act Kepper in that. So, yeah. as you say, if you don't like a journalist, don't read it. If you don't, if you want to criticise a player, don't at them. There are ways to do things that doesn't bring down other people. Yeah. Don't feign outrage when people are simply trying to have meaningful discourse. Stop whinging. Sick yeah, like on this podcast, when, when Jay McIntosh says that he'd rather, what is it, lose <laughs> with one player than win with another. So intelligent discourse let's get to some questions uh from our great audience <laughs> you're finished you're finished no, don't worry. that is the one i get all the time i i did say post west brom that i'd rather lose a billy gilmore than win with Jorginho. i will i'm not rescinding that comment because i meant it at the time there will be no agendas run next season everyone clean slate as always um but that performance warranted that comment so if you've got an issue message daniel um can we, before we ask a few questions, can I just shoot some at Adam quickly? Yeah, go ahead, mate. Just, I, purely because about five minutes ago, the Sancho news got 
he's signed now for Manchester United. He's got the here we go. So I assume that's going to happen. It'd be amazing if it doesn't. Um, I just want to, you know, talk briefly transfers, five minutes, no more. Adama, Haaland, who else is linked? Declan Rice. They're the three, yeah. Obviously, two many come. I see, I've seen recently that maybe don't think the Lukaku stuff's over and done with, but I genuinely believe he's going to stay at Inter. Um, which is pretty cool, can't I? I'm gutted about it, but it's just something beautiful about him being up front at Inter. Um, from from where you're you're sat, and I'm sure there are things that you can't can't say on a podcast, but how how are how are things shaping up for you in in the transfer world, and and what's the likelihood? I guess that that's what people want to know of of of, of Chelsea making any of these signings because it still seems to me as though we've got to wait for the Euros to finish and players need to be out of the door before we start mm. bringing new ones in. There's an awful lot that need to. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty much fair summation of it. There are an awful lot of players who are going to be back at Cobham um, next week now. Is um, Marco Marin going to be there? Because I, I feel that even though he's officially <laughs> left, Marin will Marin will probably still show up for preseason training. Marco Marin, Lucas Piazon, uh, Van Ginkle, he'll be there. <laughs> Kennedy, he's another one. All the boys. Kennedy's still contracted, so there's a good chance he will be. Um yeah, there's an awful lot of players that Chelsea have to get off or, or out. How easy that will be, I don't really know. And I think that's kind of the unknown of this transfer window is there's still not loads of money around for, for clubs outside the elite um, and probably outside the Premier League in truth. Um, and Chelsea do have a lot of players to, to sort of sift through. And there's there's going to be a lot of players in pre-season who get chances because of the fact that a lot of the first team squad is at the Euros. Um, as we know and, and have been, are going to come back late. So you are going to see a lot of a lot of guys involved in the sort of early weeks of preseason, which will give Tuchel a, a decent enough chance to to have a look over them. Um, but let's say I'm not sure how easy it's going to be, or how much of a financial hit Chelsea maybe will be willing to take on some of these players. You have someone like a Bakayoko who will, who will be involved in preseason, but if Thomas Tuchel decides he's not for me. And there's not necessarily a guarantee that will happen. He could turn around and go, yeah, great. I think he's I think he's got a role here. But if he does turn around and say he's not for me, then Chelsea have to then accept either they take a big hit on him now, which I think they have to do because he's only got a year left on his contract. Or you try and get him to sign an extension maybe for another year and then loan him out again. But it's incredibly tiresome, I suppose, that approach because you there's a lot of players like that that, you know, Michi Bachiwai, Danny Drinkwater. There's a long list of these guys who've only got a year left that you kind of need to make decisions on. In terms of the incomings, it's a weird one now because I think everybody knows, as you said, the names that Chelsea really want. Um, they're quite public, um, which again isn't by accident, uh, going back to what we were saying earlier. Um, and it is going to be a case of patience. I think the Haaland deal, yes, Chelsea want to sign Erling Haaland, whether or not they can. Whether or not someone like Marina Guanascai, who's obviously a very savvy businesswoman, is willing to commit that much money to a signing that they can get for more than half the price next summer, potentially, I don't know. And I think it's going to be one that does take a very long time to sort of work its way through one way or the other. Um, in terms of Rice, I think that all there may, there may be some movement on that post-Euros. I don't think anything's going to happen until it's done, uh, until England are eliminated. Um which hopefully <clears throat> will be on Saturday. 
<laughs> and yeah, the Adama stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll doff my hat to Matt Law on this. He's he's run this quite strongly for a good three weeks now. And to be honest, from from my perspective on it, if Chelsea really want to sign Adama Traore, they can, um, because they've got the money to do it. Whether or not I agree that they should is is another conversation and one we've already had. But um, yeah. I think you know they can get Adama if if they really want to get Adama they can find the money for him. He's not going to be an £80 million signing like a Hakimi may have been. Yeah, Adama's interesting. I mean, I have said on this podcast that he is the world's most overrated player. But <laughs> I thought I'm, that was Vinicius. It, oh, no, it is Vinicius. It is Vinicius Jr. But then then it's Adama Troy's up there. But I really do think that if he joined, which, again, I'm not sort of down for it, but if, if he does, then obviously he'll get back just like any other player. I there, think there is potential. There is potential there for Tuchel to craft a really excellent right wing back, but there is. He's not very good defensively. Is my concern about that? And his, and his, and his output is stinking. Yeah, uh, I think <laughs> having looked into his underlying, Daniel's laughing. Daniel's having, laughing in the background. Having looked more into his underlying numbers, I'm not hugely expecting him to necessarily come to Chelsea and take off like maybe someone like uh, Diogo Jota did at Liverpool um, last season but as, as, as I say as Matt Lawrence reported Tuchel sees him as an impact or, or something different and for all my concerns about Damatore yeah he is a bit different and he does bring something very unique to the party in the sense of there's not many people with the physical profile of him. There's not many people as fast as him. And he can, you know, chuck a step over, knock the ball to his right and run past people. How easy that is to be used effectively in a Chelsea team when you play teams who sit deep a lot of the time. I'm not sure. But as as you say, if he does arrive, you judge him as fairly as you would anyone else. So, yeah. yeah, we'll see what happens on that front. But there we is would, we would have interest. a new award for next season if Adama Traore, um, the biggest bicep of the year, would go to Adama Traore. <laughs> and I don't think unless Reese gets in the gym and really tests him, yeah. maybe it will increase the competition. But at least that would, at, least, at the very least, it would give me a, a like a new award for next year. I would say I've been following Adama Traore's career since Barcelona, and you know he moved over to Aston Villa, had a sort of difficult loan, then went to Middlesbrough. I remember, I mean, I think it was Courtois in 16-17 made a really good save against him. And he was, there There were parts to his game that I think you've, there was one season, I think it was nineteen twenty under Nuno where oh, he had, he had, yeah. he had a really good year season. and you felt yeah. he's becoming this player. You know, he's, he's turning into the player we all thought he could be. Um, maybe the fact that it was not a good year for Wolves, you know, Nuno Espirito Santo, I was reading a, report about him and how it all went wrong for him basically this year and it's, it's been difficult and I agree with you Adam I think that what intrigues me is that a coach of the level of Tuchel wants Adama Traore like is there something he's seeing that we haven't he's mm-hmm. an elite level coach and that intrigues me it doesn't my issue with it as you've written at, you know as I wrote in my blog last week and as I said in my videos is it's and it was the same with Akimi. it's exactly the same situation with Akimi. it's beyond Thomas Tuchel it's what happens to these players and I also think that if Adama Traore comes in, I'm thinking about, if I'm Callum hudson I'm thinking about my future instantly. And if I'm Hakim Ziyech, I'm thinking about my future. Because both of those players, you know, not only can Cho play at right wing back as he has, but 
um, we know that Adama could be used as as an impact right winger. So I just I it logically I don't think the deal makes that much sense even for twenty to twenty five million. Uh, that's my opinion right now. Okay, let's get to some actual questions. Uh, some more lighthearted ones. At that Chelsea pod, great guys. Definitely suggest uh, going listening to their podcast. Uh, this is firstly for Adam. How did Mr. Tumble perform in defence? <laughs> uh, very well for the sort of three minutes my daughter was interested in this concept of using her little toys to, to play football with them. But no, solid, solid. Mm. I think he's got a good future and maybe could overtake Andreas Christensen at some point. So, you know, there's always is that. <laughs> Don't you dare. Secondly, if you could, if you all could sign one player from the England team for Chelsea, who would it be and why? Oh, that is a very good question. I can hear the agenda claxing going off in the background <laughs> of Daniel's, <laughs> Daniel's camera right now. Go on, Adam, you go first. You're the guest because, well, we've all been saying stupid things the last five minutes. Um... That is such a good question. I mean, yeah, the obvious one is Declan Rice because Chelsea actually do want to sign him. But I guess I'm going to say a slightly left field one, maybe. Because I think the obvious one, though, Harry Kane, Chelsea, the striker. But I'm going to say Saka because I think he's brilliant. And he's only 19 and he can play in about four positions. And yeah, he's got such... He's got everything you want from a young player. He's technically brilliant. He's quick. He's got the temperament that you could chuck him into a, a Euros and he looks completely fine. You can play him against Germany. He looks completely fine. Um, and he's a West London boy as well. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to say Saka. And I'm working out of Sancho's gone to United, so I'm taking him off the table. That's fair enough. I, I'd take Harry Kane. I love I loved Declan Rice. I thought he had a really poor first half, to be honest, in, in the in the game against Germany, but his second half was outstanding. But yeah, obviously Harry Kane, because he's probably the best striker in the world, besides Lewandowski and Lukaku. So, Daniel, let me hear your original answer. Uh, no comment. Finally, thoughts on Billy <laughs> Lone uh, move to Norwich, which we probably, by the time, knowing my luck, by the time we up, upload this podcast, the move should be done. I believe he's going to have a medical. It was all about, was it Adam? Was it all about his quarantine? And that's why there's been a delay. But just generally what they're asking is uh, our thoughts on the low move. Oh, and also, Jay, will you be buying a Norwich shirt with Gilmore on the back? Absolutely not. With Gilmore on the back? Definitely. Uh, well, uh... <laughs> no, now he's thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if someone sends me one, I'll wear it. But no, I'm not buying any kits. I'll just start I'll a child fund or something for you. Um, I'd, just, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd maybe consider a, a Gilmore Scotland top. Okay. Controversial, seeing as you think England are going to win the Euros and uh, fully behind them, but each their own. Um, Gilmore's loan. Yeah, good one, I think. And it's, I'm not, it's got a level of being thought out that I don't always think Chelsea's loan deals have. Um Obviously, I wrote the piece today, you know, Thomas Tuchel worked with Daniel Fogg for two years at Borussia Dortmund. They were quite close. They, you know, Daniel Fogg said since they had a lot of conversations about football, how they view football and, and ideas. And I think for someone to be looking after Billy, to have that relationship with Tuchel and to kind of know what Tuchel wants from a midfielder and the sort of aspects of the game that he'll have to improve to get into Tuchel's side assuming he's here longer term, is actually really important. And I think it's a loan that people may look at and think Billy's taking a step back. But I actually think it's a loan that's been done with 
his longer term future at Chelsea in mind because I do think he will improve a lot at Norwich and probably improve the sides of his game that he needs to improve to get into Tuchel's team going forward on a regular basis next season. Can I can I add as well? And you know, I'd be more more serious here than I have in the last ten minutes. Says it's something that doesn't specifically work at, at top top clubs unless you have a manager like Pep, for example, or, or Klopp, who are who are just outstanding in every aspect. But I I really like Norwich and I like them because they're very principled and they stick to their game plan and they have a style that they want to play. And they will play that style, win, lose or draw. And and that's something that personally I really respect about a, a team. And that's that's why, for example, when, when Sarri joined Chelsea, I was, I was really excited. I wasn't, you know, doing any of the Twitter stuff back then. But I, I like someone that has principles and is willing to sort of live or die by those principles. Well, like Bielsa as well. And, and the, the way that Norwich play is something that Daniel and I have spoken about before in the sense that, Billy needs a move that's very, very considered and he needs to go to a club that's going to stylistically benefit the strengths of his game whilst allowing him to work on the, I don't want to say weaknesses, but things that he needs to improve on. And firstly, he's going to get a lot of minutes playing for Norwich, I imagine. Um, well, they'd be crazy not to play him every game, but he'll get lots of minutes at Norwich. And they play a, a style of football that I really do think is going to improve because he's there, but help him as a as a young player playing in the Premier League, develop his game. So, you know, similar to what Adam said, this is a really smart move. I mean, for me, I, I wanted him. If I could choose a team for him to go to, I would have chosen Leeds. Um, but his guaranteed minutes at Norwich is going to be really beneficial. And Norwich have a couple of quite exciting players, so it'd be interesting to see how they do. Obviously. No Emi Buendia, which for some reason certain specifically Arsenal fans don't rate him. I don't know why. He's absolutely awesome as a football player and is he's, he's a Europa League player minimum. So, you know, um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how they cope with, with losing him. I know they signed, is it Rashika? Is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. Who was potentially more exciting a few years ago uh, when he burst onto the scene, but still a very good player. But, you know, overall, the Norwich move is going to benefit Billy in, in almost every way and, and it's nice that Fark is a, is a manager that Tuchel trusts implicitly and I imagine that the conversations about Billy's progression will be both per, uh, like professional and personal they'll, they'll speak, they'll, they'll converse you know and, and that's quite nice to know that regardless of results I don't really I'm not going to mind too much what Norwich's results are but for Billy it's it's about how can he progress and how can he develop. And it's nice that this move seems to be very considered. And that makes me comfortable that his development is going to uh, continually ascend. Mm. Next question by Ollie Glanville. Who's your wild card in pre-season who comes back and stays of the returnee slash under 23 uh, promotions in early summer? I'm going to say Ruben Loftus-Cheek because I haven't given up on him. And I wrote a piece last week uh, when I had a real look into his numbers at Fulham and was quite surprised how similar they were to his Palace loan, um, which I didn't really expect to be an issue. I did expect there to be a bit more of a drop off because he didn't contribute as much uh, in terms of a a genuine output as perhaps uh, many expected him to. But 
a lot of Fulham fans then got up in my mentions and said he was rubbish last year. So I kind of have an extra will for him to prove himself because there's such a good player in Ruben Loftus-Cheek. We started to see how good he could be um, under Mauricio Sarri. And from what I can glean, he's a player that Thomas Tuchel likes. He has attributes that Thomas Tuchel quite likes from his um Maybe as someone in the double six, which we haven't seen a lot of Ruben at senior level, but he did do it at academy level. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to say Ruben just because I don't want him to not make it at Chelsea because of how much ability and potential he's always had. Um, and I'm going to chuck another name in there, which is Dujon Sterling, which is nobody's oh, talking so about. So glad Dujon. you said that. Nobody's talking about Dujon. Um, he's had a, a really tough, he had a really tough 2020. He came back in January. Mm-hmm has worked his way back up with the 23s, has got himself into a really good physical state um, and a mental place where I think he could come in pre-season and actually surprise an awful lot of people because I have a feeling a lot of people have just forgotten how good Dujon Sterling was at academy level. Um, I would argue he was potentially even more impressive than Reese for the youth team at points. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to chuck his name in as well. Um, because I know he's expected to be back with the seniors um, for the first few weeks at least. That's a great shout. Do you know what I would love? I love the idea of Armando Brozier having a, a really positive preseason at Chelsea. It's not really a wild card, but everyone knows Ger, he's fantastic. So I imagine he'll have a, a strong preseason. And yeah, I, li- I like the Ruben idea. I don't know whether he's going to have it at Chelsea which is a shame because we all want him to but I do I also really like the rumours of linking him with, with Lazio because I just think that's quite a romantic <laughs> move it's just pretty cool isn't it to see imagine if he was just killing it in Serie A it'd be amazing um, but yeah they're mine Daniel what are yours? Uh, yeah the dream on Ruben has, has never died um, I think <laughs> there's I've, I've, I'm actually going to stick to this I think out of all the academy players I've always believed in terms of potential, I think Ruben could be the best. But unfortunately, injuries and fitness and issues have derailed that. Um, what I saw at the back end of eighteen nineteen, I mean, you got to remember that was a team still with Eden Hazard in it. And he, both him and uh, Ruben, I think Ruben was sometimes outplaying Eden Hazard in terms of how good he was. And I think... Chelsea still lack goals from midfield. Like Chelsea still lack someone from who's going to make runs from deep. And Ruben, if Tuchel can somehow get him into the system, get him playing on that left, making those driving runs, I think you've got potentially an extraordinary player there still. And I just hope it can work for him. Uh, Rob asks, what's Adam's preferred Greg's order? I know uh, Jay like, will, will like the vegan sausage roll, obviously, and that will be your order. I genuinely can't remember the last time I went to Greg's. Um, no, I, I, I mean, there was one on the high street where near to where I went to school, and at lunchtime we'd go and get something there. But all right, it's all not, right. It's not a, if it's you're not going to I some frequent. sort of one of those, if you're going to, uh, if you're walking down the high street, what, what do you go into like Subway, any of that stuff? Uh, Costa, if you're feeling bougie. <laughs> um, surely Pret is the sort of top yeah, tier um oh, this is such a hard question because i probably could have answered it easily pre-covid um i don't go out much anymore is the is the standard response but um 
what would I get? I don't know, sandwich? Just something really boring. Not that interesting. Um, but I'd always get coffee. I'd always say it. coffee and a sandwich what? or something. Uh, probably a flat white. My coffee journey has, has, has been has been very uh, sort of solid over the years because I didn't used to drink coffee seven years ago. And then my wife sort of got me into mockers and I've graduated all the way to a flat white now. Um, and then the last big hill to climb, isn't it? Uh, espresso. But mockers always the one that gets people in. I worked at Costa for two years when I was at sixth form. And I cannot explain to you how long it is to make a flat white. Uh, it's uh, it, the process of making a flat white is so long. You get a, you get a pay rise, or you used to get a pay rise when you get your flat white badge because they're difficult to make. Are they really? Isn't it just a small latte, basically? No, because you have to spin the milk in a certain direction at a certain temperature. Then you have to post heating the milk. You have to tap it and spin it to remove the oxygen. And then you have to pour from a certain height at a certain angle to get the pattern through. It's genuinely a ball ache. Oh, my God. I did not know. I'm just going to stop ordering. I'll go back to a latte. No, 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 it's it's John, easier remember, for the barista then, surely. If I, I remember working latte. Saturdays. I remember working Saturdays. And this woman, I wish I knew her name because I'd at her right now. This woman <laughs> used to come in and she'd have three Sawyer flat whites, one decaf. And I literally, I, I would spot her from, walk into the shop and I would go and do something else because it would take so long but they are like probably the nicest tasting ones i i i, I just drink black coffee with a sugar because yeah cheaper well not even that i drink it at home if i'm going out then i might treat myself something a bit nicer <laughs> all good all good carefree youth asks uh chelsea olympics which player out of the squad do you think is the best name to put forward to be good at long jump javelin and 400 meters out of the current squad one for each can i just say i think that someone uh, nick here replied instantly and i think his shouts are good for all three long jump i instantly think of kurt zuma because no one can yeah, beat black kurt in the too. first yeah. kurt's got to be on one of these javelin uh nick has gone for reese james as a shout I assume that's yeah. because of the, the bulk. As we say, if Adama Traore comes in, and I think I'm giving it to Adama. And for 400 metres, um, Ingolo Kante. Or Timo Werner. Uh, Timo's quick over short bursts. I'm not sure he'd have the the sort of stamina to make it to 400. Um, yeah, to be fair, they're all pretty good answers. Um, I'm not sure, do javelin throwers have to be tall? I feel like they they kind of do. There is a certain player I have in mind that would be really decent at throwing a javelin, but... No, we ain't going there, Jay. We ain't going there, Jay. I'm going I'm to say Edu Mendy for javelin because he's tall yeah. and he's used to he's used to dealing with, with his hands in terms of a sporting environment. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw him in. I'd, also, I'd, put Timo, but I'd, I'd put Timo in the 100 metres. Jam asks, Raheem Sterling, discuss. That's aimed at me. I know that's aimed at me because you were I, you were bigging up Raheem like you were defending Raheem Sterling, weren't you, after the Scotland yeah. game? Yeah, well, this has been a thing. But this stems. I know where this stems from, right? And I know that we've been talking for a little while, but I I basically suggested a few months ago on a live stream with Jam and, and Hajir that there's a there's a bundle of players that exist at the top teams that in a season if everything were to go their way, they would be well in contention for a, a Ballon d'Or consideration, right? 
Raheem Sterling was one of those players. Now, what I said at the time was, if if Man City win three trophies and England get to a semi-final or a final or win the Euros, and Sterling finishes the season with 30 to 40 goals and assists, he's on 28 at the moment, that, that would then obviously have to propel him into that conversation. I, I named other players like Sane was another one. For example, if Germany were to do the same thing and he would, because he has that potential. Bernardo Silva is another player that in the right conditions at the right time, if everything went their way, they have the ability to also carry them into that conversation. And I took a lot of heat because both the boys, you know, which fair enough, they said they don't think Sterling's that guy. I know I know Jam thinks he's a very clutch player, um, which is understandable. I, I personally think he's an outstanding player. You know, he's, I think he's played around 260 games for Man City and he's got over 200 goals and assists, which is absolutely wild. If that was any, if, if Hazard had those numbers, we'd, mm. we literally would talk about them all day, let's be fair. And the guy's 26. He, he's, he's absolutely been through the ringer in terms of he he was the the bright English starlet that got hounded out by the papers that you shouldn't buy. Um, the Sun, Daily Mail, you know which papers are. And um, I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful player. Um, I like that he's got a bit of aggression. He, this season has obviously not been his finest season, but you look at his numbers still and most players in the world don't put up numbers that are like that. And and if this is an off-season for a 26-year-old this experienced, who is also dragging England through a, a Euros as we speak, I, I really I don't understand why there's so much backlash. I genuinely just think that people want to see different players being played for England. And, and Sterling is one of those players that people don't want to see as much as they want to see Jack Grealish or Jadon Sancho. But he's integral to the system and he is the guy that's spearheading the team at the moment. So, yeah, that's my that's my spiel on Sterling. Any thoughts, Adam? No, I think you're right. I think I've been I've been so impressed with his evolution over the last four five years to to transform into what is an elite level sort of inside forward. Basically, um, I think you know we've seen the the importance of, of goal scoring wide players. Um, how prevalent it is now and how important it is to the top sides. And he is one of the best around at actually getting into the six-yard box, which from a purely talented, uh, sorry, purely talent perspective, you don't need an absolute abundance of talent to be able to do that, but you need the mindset to keep doing that, to keep getting in there, to, to keep getting uh, into the box and hope that the ball eventually lands for you. Obviously, we've seen previously just at Chelsea, the same sort of play uh, mindset is, is Frank Lampard, you know, it takes a lot of work to get to that point in your career where you are doing it consistently and regularly. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really pleased for him because he has put up with an awful lot of undeserved media. Um, probably a player you can actually say has had a, a media campaign against him or an agenda from certain yeah, definitely. Uh, publications definitely. and he's come through it all. And uh, it's mad when you say he was 26. Genuinely, that always no, it's astonishing. Me. It's absolutely astonishing, and and you know, I I want to I'm I'm forever going to defend him because he's an absolutely wonderful player. But you know, he he has a a willingness to learn and adapt his game when he needs to, and and that is something that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, oftentimes, I see people say, "Ah, oh, his attitude stinks." His attitude doesn't stink. 
Not at all. He gets five when to again, six games. When again, it's nonsense. This is what I'm now. saying. This is what I'm saying. And and this is again something we've touched on before that when certain people are talking about successful black players, that these issues get mm-hmm. exacerbated. And it's just if if you have this opinion, oh my god. Anyway, I think is is it not and it, not to always link this back to a Chelsea thing. I think Sterling can at times look a little bit inelegant in the way his body yeah. moves. And, and he looks, do you know what, sometimes he can look very pissed off or, or sulk. And I don't know if yeah. people like that. But I was going to say, sorry to, to cut in, Adam, that to, to become a top, top level footballer, I think every single person I've ever known has played football, pretty much. And I'm sure that's the same for most of you guys. Most mm-hmm. people you know will have played football either for a club at some point. And to be in a select group of 50 to 100 players, you have to have a certain mentality and a certain willingness to learn, adapt and grow. And and, and for me, that's exactly what he embodies. And, and and yeah, go on, Adam. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, I was just I'd say the thing, one of the great things I feel about football is there's no prototype footballer. Um, there are certain players you can look at and go, yeah, like his body, like Cristiano Ronaldo, like, the man looks like he was sculpted to play professional football, but doesn't necessarily make him the best to ever do it, in my opinion. That would be Messi. And Messi's a, a small guy, maybe not the most physically gifted um, in terms of body shape and, and, and all this, but elite level talent alone gets him to this point where he can be regarded as one of, if not the best players ever to play the game. And that's why I think, you know, Sterling, yeah, he can look awkward sometimes, but doesn't detract away from how talented he is or how much of an impact he can have in games. And I think maybe he just suffers a little bit from the fact he isn't maybe as aesthetically pleasing all the time as someone like a Jack Grealish. Mm. And as well, I think there's been this nonsense argument that used to be thrown at Frank a lot of the time at Chelsea that annoyed me was that he's playing with great players. So his achievements aren't that great or his individual quality like the argument that's been made about Raheem Sterling as well if he was playing in like a worse team he'd be a bad player or you know he's he wouldn't get the same numbers and I just think that's silly as you know Jay has demonstrated you know that anticipation he had throughout you know throughout the Euros this summer to be in the right place one of my criticisms Sterling is that I think at times he's he can be more clinical when he gets into great spaces. I think sometimes he panics, or at least it looks like it. Sometimes he doesn't quite maybe have, have the right picture in his head for what he wants to do. Um, but in this tournament for England, he's been absolutely ruthless when he's got into the box. Like when he's received the ball in those areas, there's been no messing around with Raheem Sterling. And that's years of of him improving that side of his game. And that's intelligence. That's a knack that I think few players have. Um, and I think that that's what absolutely deserves the credit. There is a guard to his game. He's not an explosive winger, even though he can be very fast off his feet. I don't think of him as like a, someone like a Christian Pulisic or, you know, Mohamed Salah. I don't think of him as that kind of player that just bursts through. I think sometimes Raheem Sterling can be quite subtle in his game. And I think that's maybe why some people don't think of him as one of those world-class players. But I think it's world-class. He scores the goals. He doesn't. And there's a reason why he's constantly in the right place at the right time. And um, yeah, he absolutely deserves credit. The final question is a simple one from Dean Mears, who asks, what is the meaning of life? And I don't know if either of you have a, have a gear and answer for that. <laughs> oh, God, I could say something incredibly cheesy here and just say that it's my family now as a parent. And yeah, that's sick, though. But um, yeah, that is probably my meaning of life in terms of my day to day, why I have to keep focused on and what I have to make sure is looked after and safe. 
to be honest. I can't. <laughs> I can't. If add you anything. say Andreas Christensen, I'm gonna end this <laughs> podcast. I can't. I can't add anything quite as beautiful as that. But yeah, just just find what makes you happy and and, and do what you can to to keep doing it. Uh, essentially, that's probably the uh, the nicest note we can end on. Unless Daniel, you have something very obscure that is the meaning of your life besides uh, painful English bias. Yeah, whatever. Um, no, that's not my advice, by the way, for the meaning of life. Yeah, whatever. But um, I've got I've got it tattooed on my arm, uh, never conform. Um, and that means a lot to me. Uh, but just generally, I think, treat people the way you want to be treated. I'll explain the football takes. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, never conform. That's what I'm going to say. You know, that's, that's, my, that's my answer. Beautiful. Well, look, look at that. It's been about an hour and a half. Uh, in that time, Jaden Sancho's been Romano'd, as has uh, Nuno at Spurs. So that's exciting. Alistair um, Gold finally, you know, has to stop like making videos where he looks flustered. I was going to bring up, uh, Adam, that, of course, one of your, uh, one of the other journalists, of course, uh, covers Tottenham Hotspur. And I actually, of course, I'm not supposed to because I'm a Chelsea fan, but I do watch a lot of his videos because <laughs> I find him really entertaining. Um, he was saying similar to you in terms of the amount of grief he's got because so much has changed at Tottenham. It's gone from talks mm. about Poch returning to Conte to Fonseca to Gattuso. I believe Nuno is the last one, unless there's been... I know there was some something out the sun that said Graham Potter rejected it. Um, Jay, did you reject the job? Um, I considered it. I considered it a bit, and then I thought... Nah, did, didn't like the fact make... Harry Kane's future was uncertain. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. I think maybe to, to end off, off the podcast, boys, do you think Spurs are going to finish next season? <laughs> Um, with Nuno in I, sh- I assume Kane's going to leave but I, it's not easy but in my head when I'm going to make my prediction Kane is not there which would be glorious um, you know what I, whenever something like that happens and you think a club's going to have a bad season they usually have a better one than you expect so I will probably say top seven which isn't really going out on a huge limb, but there you go. I'm going to be quite brash, and I'm going to say that Villa will finish above Spurs. That's I'm not going to give a specific position, but I think Villa will come above Spurs next season, which would be absolutely wonderful. Just to throw it out there, because I really like Villa. Um, Daniel? I really don't care where Spurs finish. You know, I, I just, well, you, you would know. care if they're... Well, well yeah, if they're, yeah, but like, you know... I've, I've never hated Spurs as much as I'm supposed to as a Chelsea fan. They're kind of just like quite below in my rankings for me. As long as Chelsea are far in front of them, which they usually are, then. I think that's fair. Do you know what? I don't really hate... I, well, I don't know. I do. I dislike Spurs, but I, t- I took a lot of flack for saying I like their team because apparently I'm not allowed to say that, but I do like their team, specifically Harry Kane. But we've, we've been through an awful lot in the last hour and a half. Um... So it's probably best to, to wrap it here. Adam clearly thinks England aren't going to win the Euros, which is bitterly disappointing. Um, <laughs> Didn't say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful um, until we lose to Ukraine on Saturday night and then I'm going to be utterly distraught and receive a text from Adam just with a smiley face or, <laughs> or told, you, <laughs> told you so, full stop. But like I said at the end of every podcast, if you're listening... At any point in the podcast, go somewhere busy, in your car, windows down, turn it up, 
share it with your family, share it with your friends. Uh, DM me, DM Daniel, uh, do whatever you Don't DM to me. Do. I'm not asking for DMs here. Like, you know, All right, DM Jay. DM me, DM Daniel. Um, subscribe to Daniel's YouTube. Follow Adam on Twitter, which I'm sure you do both of those things already. And at some point, maybe next week, we'll be back. I guess we've got a couple of episodes that we've wanted to do for ages. So um, I imagine it'll be one of those, right? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, like, rate, review, whatever you want to do, do that. And we'll be back next time. Thanks. <laughs>